I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I am thrilled to be joined today by Molly McGee, who is from a cluster of unincorporated towns outside of Nashville, Tennessee. She completed her MFA in fiction at Columbia, where in addition to receiving a chair's fellowship, she taught in the undergrad creative writing department. She's worked in the editorial departments of McSweeney's, The Believer, Noon, FSG, and Tour. Currently living in Brooklyn, her work has appeared in the Paris Review, and her debut novel is called Jonathan Abernathy. You are kind. <laughs> Welcome, Molly. <laughs> Hi. Um, it's so hard not to laugh when people are reading my bio, because I'm just like, oh my gosh. <laughs> it's, I don't know why, but it makes me giggle. Well, it's very impressive. And so we have a lot to talk about, and we're going to get to debt and the lack of safety nets in America and the publishing industry, of course. But I wanted to start out by asking you about the narrator of this novel, because they are one of the most omniscient I've encountered in a while. Um, And so tell me about developing that voice. Um, you know, it's been interesting doing the press for this book because one of the key elements of the the text is that it kind of shifts majorly a couple of times so that the book you start reading by the end isn't the book um, that you got into and it's hardly recognizable. Um, so I don't want to give any spoilers away. No, don't do it. <laughs> but a lot of this book is about perspective and retrospect and sort of the ways when we are going through a difficult time, our perceptions of what we're going through can be radically different than the perceptions of those 
around us. And so how do you navigate getting to the other side of um, sort of that experience? And I think the narrator um, was a tool that I really used to sort of explore those themes. Yeah, I, I want to talk a little bit about how time works in, in this novel because Jonathan Abernathy says two, two things about the past, present, and future that really stuck out to me. Um, one, that the past is an addiction, a way to escape both the future and the present. <laughs> and also that he, because he is forced to live in the past because he has debt, mm. in the present because hunger and future housing. And that's right. all at once. Yeah, but doesn't that feel true? <laughs> it's, it sure does. Uh, it's and, like, oh, um, my God. It's exhausting. What? It's yeah. so I'm so tired. Are you tired, Meredith? I'm tired. So tired. <laughs> and I don't even have a job to do when I'm sleeping. I don't think. <laughs> I guess you won't. There's how will you know, you know? Yeah. Um, the the time, the way time works. You know, do we we say we understand it and we talk about it like it's this fixed thing, but each of us have a sort of subjective experience of time that changes and fluctuates dependent on our mood, our health, our schedule. Um, you know, you've heard the saying like it, it's only it feels like it was just yesterday um, and it was three years ago. And. I, when I was writing this book, COVID was happening mm. and time to me seemed to be in major flux. And it made working very, a very surreal experience, which I think all of us who lived through that time period That's right. got a taste of that. Um, I really wanted to explore the way dreaming and working specifically, like how they change our interpretation of our time on this planet and how they sort of, our experience of them shifts our experience of our temporal realities. That sounds and like maybe, those are kind of big words. <laughs> I don't know. No, that's that. good. And, and, and what it makes me think about which doesn't have much bearing in this book, but does in our, our real lives, is, is the idea of sitting in a cubicle for eight hours a day and time just moves so slowly <laughs> every single day. Oh, my God. And it's just painful, right? It hurt. It hurt. But no, thankfully, no cubicles in this book. <laughs> I tried to avoid cubicles. <laughs> Um, we're really looking at working from sort of uh, the physical labor perspective. Like, what does it cost on our body and our mind? Yeah. So, so let's talk a little bit about Jonathan Abernathy. First, this is very simple, but like the rhythm of his name is so pleasing. Isn't it pleasing? <laughs> it's incredibly poetic. I think his name is what came to me first just the it just the rhythm of it kept repeating in my head um and it was kind of became like a, a mantra um yeah just the the o and the a and the a e a the vowels yeah with the hard 
um, consonants. I mean, I just really love it. It was just good because I had to write it a lot. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. And and I do love how sometimes the narrator refers to him just as Abernathy, but but many times we get the whole right. name. Right. <laughs> yeah, because nobody calls him Jonathan. Everybody yeah. just calls him by his last name. Um, it's funny when we talk about oppressed people, mm. we aren't normally going straight for a young, good-looking, seemingly <laughs> white guy. Oh, he, oh yeah, girl. Just, um, you know, <laughs> tell what? me about think... making him that. <laughs> okay, so to me, Abernathy was really a portrait of a lot of people that I spent time with. Um, incredibly self-focused, maybe, and mm-hmm. <laughs> best with uh, success at the cost of everything, but also sort of trapped because they had such an optimism for the future that everyone around them had sort of realized was no longer true. Um, And I wanted to explore that heartbreak. Um, How can I put this in a delicate way? I think uh, masculinity is so, especially white masculinity is it must be a very hard time for them because they're having to realize some very hard truth that the rest of us might have realized a little bit before now. Um, well, so they, you know, I have a lot of empathy for Jonathan. It's quite sad what he goes through, but his relationships with all of the people around him who know what's going on and he just has no idea and nobody can tell him either. Nobody says no. it outright. You know, it's like, dude, you you believe in an idea that is no longer real. You know, it's like that's your conceptions of reality and what's possible. It's yeah. no longer possible. And that's heartbreaking. It's that really, is, really heartbreaking. Yeah. He, he seems to lack some critical thinking skills. I think so. He might lack <laughs> or, or maybe critical awareness of others. Yeah, sure. That's 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 fair. Um, his perspective, he's very incapable of leaving his own perspective, at least during the duration where he's in, where he's at work. I think the the most relatable parts about him, which I have certainly felt more than once, is this intense desire to be not only liked, but to fit in. Right. Uh, he, he really, he... Is in search of normality, which I think is like, like, he really is. He's so like, he really believes in the concept of normalcy and he really, really wants it desperately. Um, And it's heartbreaking for him to find out that no, no, not one of us have it. Not a single person on this planet lives normally, but we all want to so bad, don't we? Sounds nice. And then, of course... One of the first things we learn about Abernathy is that he is drowning in debt. Right. And that 
once again, can make you very focused on your life right now. Yes. And what you do to the, survive. It is the... It is the great engine of solipsism, is what I'll say. <laughs> is when you are in debt, like it, there's nothing quite like being in debt that makes you obsess about your own condition. Um, it's it's really a trap in a lot of ways. It is it's a way to keep you solely focused on yourself, and it's sad. And and related to that, of course, at one point in the book referred to the the humiliation of poverty, which it is humiliating. Um and I, you know, the thing is, like I, I empathize with Abernathy a lot. Um because it's like no there's no dignity in his position. And he thinks that he will be granted personhood if he can ascend, I want to say like the money ladder, you know, he thinks mm-hmm. that if, he, if he gets enough money, if he can accumulate enough wealth, then people will be forced to respect him. Um, but the really sad truth is just people don't really respect each other. We don't necessarily treat each other with respect. And I think used to our society had it built in that we would at least treat one group with respect, white men. But even that has sort of collapsed. So I don't know how true his delusions are, but I think we can all, uh, I think we all might have felt that way at some time. If we just had enough money, you know, if we just dressed the right way, if we just knew the social cue cards, then our suffering would be minimized. But those are not necessarily truths. And, and related I feel like you really get uh, this idea that both both in life and in fiction, that the idea of agency is not what it used to be. Right. Um, You know, I don't know if I should say this or not, but I think a lot about, okay, this is so embarrassed. I'm so embarrassed. (laughs) No, stop. Sometimes I think sometimes I think I'm like still stuck in the Victorian age. Like, I'm still very concerned with, like, ideas and concepts that a lot of people have written off. So I was thinking a lot about free will when I was writing this book. And, you know, what is the navigation? How can you navigate these behemoth systems and still have individuality, personhood, agency? What does that look like? And has the society that we've built in some ways taken away the possibility for true control or guidance in your own life Um, and how much of our existence is really determined by the circumstances of our birth. I think it's more than we as Americans feel comfortable acknowledging. Absolutely. And, and then, of course, even in the title, Jonathan Abernathy, You Are Kind, there's that kind of self-helpy bootstraps thing that mm-hmm. we're kind of used to seeing, like, kind of, um, what is the word that I'm thinking of? Who cares? Like, if you just work hard enough, you know what I mean? Or if you just, like, do it the right way. And, and it's 100% that you have to lie to yourself. You have to lie to yourself. 
there's no way that you can exist on this planet and like not go absolutely insane without lying to yourself a little bit. We're all delusional in our own way. Absolutely. So Abernathy gets this job where he is a dream auditor. And to me, his his job description sounds like the guy who comes in before the Ghostbusters arrive to like vacuum up. <laughs> so, I so like that. Tell us all about this job and, and how you um, came up with the concept. Well, when I first started my journey into working, I started as a maid. My mom was a, a cleaning woman and I would help her and go with her to people's houses. And it's a very intimate um, sort of <laughs> work environment. You learn a lot about people and you learn a lot about a lot of things about people that they don't necessarily even know about themselves. Um, and since that was my introduction to working, I've always sort of viewed working through that lens. Like, what does it mean to see other people in a way they can't even see themselves? Um, now, when this idea, when the idea for the book came to me, it came to me in a dream, which is like so cliche. <laughs> so I'm so sorry. Um, but like, it came to me fully formed. And while I've been doing press for the book, people have asked me like, why did you make this decision? Or why did you make this decision? But it really came to me almost completely. It was like I was the translator. Um, now I can theorize that like maybe my subconscious like fixated on this idea because my time as a maid with my mom when I was growing up. But I have no idea why it just all clicked into place like that. It just seemed so logically complete while I was dreaming it. And it was a recurring dream. So I had it night after night after night. So by the end of this like three-year cycle of me working on this book, I was very, it was hard to tell, you know, what was the book and what was the dream that I had been having. So it's a little, it's a little on the Very on topic. <laughs> yes. So one of the other things, of course, that if we're talking about the subconscious and what we have to suppress, this is very much a book about grief right. and how maybe especially in America, we're not supposed to let that stand in our way of being a productive member of society. Right. Like it's um, we're not really given room here to process or experience the full spectrum of emotion. And emotions are talked about in such a dismissive way. But to me, you know, my mom passed away in 2020, um, which I know you know, Maris, I'm but so the sorry. listeners yes. might not know. Yes. And it was a really tragic sort of circumstance. And I had to go back to work really shortly after. But a lot of the elements of grief they go beyond what we just think of as, quote unquote, the emotional elements. They are full bodied. It's not it's when we say that we're having feelings that does not actually like encapsulate the true experience, which is that our body is reacting to an incredibly life changing event. And it's changing and it's out of our control. And during this time is a great time of upheaval. 
And it's easy enough to talk about it like it's just all in the mind, but there are physical, actual symptoms. Um, I, d- I don't know if, you know, one of the things that I really wanted to capture in this book was the way that grief makes time so strange and almost physically painful to go through, which we chatted about a little bit. Um, this just changes your perception and relationship to the world. And it's very hard to act like a normal person while this process is happening. It really felt like, um, I felt like I went into a little cocoon, but I still was expected to show up every day and uh, be a, a person exactly how a person's supposed to be. And I found myself totally, totally incapable. Um, you know, I was experiencing like extreme, like here's an example that might be a little personal, but um, I got COVID right after my mom passed away. And it was such a horrible experience, I think in part because grief had totally eradicated my immune system. And so I was in a position where I couldn't like walk to the front of my apartment and grieving at the same time. And it really felt to me like I had not given myself the time to sit with things. Like I had just kept pushing forward and pushing forward until my body itself was like, okay, if you're not going to stop, we are going to force you to stop. Um, And that was an incredibly terrifying experience to me because I, you know, had a very American upbringing. I did not think emotions could be so bodily. And the the violence of grief, like the experience of it just completely changed my conceptions of what it means to be a person. And then, of course, in the novel, Abernathy and his neighbor, Rhoda, who we'll talk about in a little mm-hmm. bit, um, don't have health care to help them no. deal with either the physical or the, the mental. No, they have no health care. Um, they barely have full-time employment between them, though they try really hard. It's all, it's all interrelated, you know? It's, it's, it's hard to even... When we talk about these issues, we talk about them like they're siloed, but they are all so connected. Um, And everything that happens politically in one avenue of life has a domino effect on our other avenues of life. I think you can really tell these are my preoccupations when you read the book. Here's one that I... I understood right away, and I'm hoping you could talk about it a little bit. Rhoda's daughter, Timmy, has an obsession when we first meet her Mm. with mushrooms. And Mm. so, Molly, will you please tell me about fungus and what you want to do? You you remember that, do you? (laughs) (laughs) I was really fascinated by this idea of mycelial networks. So what a mycelial network is, is it is a way that fungus and um, root systems of plants communicate with each other. So it's really a fascinating concept that we are doing a lot of investigation into right now. Um, A book that I really liked on the topic 
was, let's see if I can remember it off the top of my head, Entangled Life by Merlin Sheldrake. I loved that book and I loved My Catopia by Dea Berendt, I think. I don't know. I've never said that name out loud. But, you know, when I was reading this, when I was doing my research for the novel, when I was reading about mycelial networks and the way fungus communicates, to me, it just seemed like such a potent metaphor for the way life actually operates. Um, you know, I think we were so, we have been so obsessed for the last 200 years with breaking things down into categorizations, scientifically understanding them, that we forget there's a holistic element as well. And that that holistic element actually is really important to the way we exist on this planet. Um, so yeah, I do I do explore sort of mycelial networks as a metaphor quite a lot, especially in dreaming states. Um, I think there's something in the book about how when we are all asleep, we're sharing uh, consciousness and that our experiences sort of bleed into the experiences of others, whether we realize it cogently or not. And of course, in the context of a quote unquote workplace novel, um, <laughs> it, it just, it just so, it seems like a direct pathway to collective action and what we could do if we all trained <laughs> together. Am I reading too much into this? No. Hey, look, you know, <laughs> this is one of those things where fancier authors than me can probably pretend that they have nothing to do with the text but like I have lived my life as I have lived it and everything that I have done in my life has informed the way I come to art so I am inherently biased and there might be some overlap between <laughs> my interests and my artwork so yeah, maybe there's some collection collective action nods in there I was like hey <laughs> so, so I think this is a great time to talk to you about let's talk about the acknowledgments the acknowledgments in your book are, are kind of what I thought they are meant to be when I first started working in publishing thank you for saying that Maris I agree <laughs> tell me about that tell me about what you've done I so and you know what? Um, my publishers and I just decided. So I wanted to do something really special for the people who helped create my book uh, because it's a, a really team effort and the readers who are taking a chance on me as a debut novelist. So only in the first edition of the hardcover, there the acknowledgments will be included. And in these acknowledgments, I have listed out all of the credits by name, every single person who has worked on the book, what they did on the book. Um, I even went to the trouble of listing everyone who has ever taught me. So I just really wanted there to be, you know, a physical evidence that someone put their time into this book and I wanted them to be able to keep it and for it to be special. And since book workers are often the, the first people to receive, especially debut novelists, hardcovers, I wanted them to have something really, really special that. Um, if we or if I'm lucky enough to go out of first printing, that text that they will have gotten hopefully for free from their job will eventually so. be able 
will eventually be able to compensate them for its own success. So I really wanted to be able to pay them back for the work that they did. Now, I don't know if I'm going to go out of one more one printing or go into something else, but um, I just really wanted that to to be there for them. Uh, since as a book worker, I, I know what it's like to be so invisible and to be so in the process and to dedicate like months and months of my life to a text and for the author to not even know that I worked on it. Um, and that really hurt. It really hurt me because those texts meant a lot to me. They become, they became a companion in my life. Um, and so if, that is true for anyone who worked on my book. I really wanted to acknowledge um, how much that meant to to me. So that hopefully, hopefully, it gets to give them money in the future. I don't know. Here's here's hoping. I love that, and and it really does bring home the idea that you are not just an author floating in the ether. Like that, there is an entire team around the whole. You. To create something from nothing, to create a book from nothing, it takes at least, like, for my book, I think there was probably at least 100 people who worked on it. It was so, I mean, I'm not saying necessarily worked on it by, like, had a direct hand in crossing out text or writing the word, but there are so many steps to creating a book that we forget about. There's designers, there's typesetters, there's printers, there's booksellers, there's librarians, there's, you know, marketing folks, publicity folks, publishers. There's so, so, so many people, sales reps. You know what I mean? Like there's so many people who just never, who just do the work because they love the work and they're not doing the work because they get paid well. <laughs> they certainly are not. <laughs> So I just really wanted to acknowledge all of that labor. It would have felt dishonest for me to write a book about labor and not acknowledge all the labor that went into the book. I, I think that's so lovely. And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, because maybe for listeners who don't know, you, you left your job at Tor mm -hmm. a couple of years ago now? I think 2021 or 2022. Yeah. I can't remember. Off the top of my head, is that bad? But I don't want to, I don't want to misspeak, but seemingly just disillusioned with the entire publishing process, which I very much relate to. Um, <laughs> and yet you've made a beautiful book with, with the help of so many people. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, totally. You know, I got into the book business while I, the re if I'm being honest, the reason I started down the editorial path is because I thought it would help me become a better writer. And it did in a lot of ways. It really helped me understand like the mechanics of writing and the way readers engage with the text, which is invaluable knowledge for me. Um, but I did not anticipate how much the business part would break my heart. I love books a little too much to be in the business. I just really, really love them. I love books. I love the people who read books. I love the authors who write books. It's And sometimes when we are in publishing positions, those people are not necessarily valued. And learning that really, I don't know, really, really hurt 
me. Um, now, saying that, I also know that those industries are populated by people who feel the way I do and are perhaps in a lot of ways emotionally stronger than I am. I'm sensitive. So um, I just like am so glad they can do, they have the capacity to do the work. And when I realized that, you know, I might have the talent to do the work, I might have the knowledge to do the work, but I just could not handle the sort of brutal, exploitative side of the business that maybe has been brought in by shareholders or folks who don't give a shit about reading, who are weirdly in charge of things. Selling products. Selling products. I was like, wow, I just can't do this. But I want to use my knowledge to help other people because if I'm struggling and I'm feeling this bad and I've spent, you know, my whole life dedicated towards this one goal, I cannot be the only one. And there are so many elements of publishing that we can't talk about because of its inherently political nature. You know, like you never know who's agenting who. You never know which authors are under which editor. You never know which publicist like has dirt on somebody, blah, blah, blah. And so you just can't really talk about a lot of the sort of underlying forces that I guess I want to say really control the experience. And I suddenly found myself in a position where I actually would not be politically, I mean, disenfranchised by speaking about it. And it just, I never wanted someone to go through what I went through with my mom again, where it's like, you know, this was the worst moment of my life. And I was at a job that I had given up everything for, including spending time with my family and proximity to my family. Like I moved to New York to take the job. And I knew how much of a sacrifice that was for me. And for my mom to pass away and then for that job to ask me, you know, to miss her funeral and come back to work. I miss her funeral because I had to have a job. And that was like, that has been the biggest regret of my life. Um, But it was during COVID. I didn't know what to do. And I was a caretaker for my sister. And I just I just couldn't see any other options. And after that happened, I just was I was like, I I have to do everything in my power to never let this happen to another person. And I don't know if that's necessarily in my control, but it is the only way for me that I can make up for having missed that ceremony. And so really a lot of my activism in the last two years has been, sorry, I'm getting teary, (laughs) has been a way to sort of like atone for those decisions I made during an incredibly stressful um, time. And they were the wrong, in my opinion now, they were the wrong decisions. I made the wrong decisions and I have to live with those decisions forever. However, if I can do just a little bit of good, then it will have been, if not worth it, then at least bear, able to bear. You know, I would be able to bear it. So not to be just No, and, and I'm crying a little too now. Um, 
it's a real testament to you that you were able to take that and write this novel that is not only smart and funny, but is is weirdly hopeful. That's really nice of you to say. I think it's being alive is, I don't know about if this is true for you, Marius, but being alive is really hard for me. You know, like making the decision to be alive tomorrow is like, some people are blessed and they do not have to make the active decision, but I was not blessed in that way. And I have to make the active decision every day. Um, and I wanted to be able to explore the emotions of some of these topics and realities without just subsuming to ho hopelessness. I wanted to be able to engage with them on an intellectual level without feeling like I was just dying from pain. And so I set out to write this book. I don't know if I succeeded or not, but that was really my goal in writing it was sort of capturing an experience and giving other people an avenue to explore their own hopelessness and their own perceptions of the world without sort of having to become victim to those perceptions. Well, it's I think you did a beautiful job. Before we go, please recommend some books for us. Hey, I have some books. Um, I and everybody else in the world has been loving Chain Gang All-Stars by Nana Kouame Adejibrinya. Um, one of the, my favorite things about the book is that it's just such a propulsive story while still engaging with some really heavy topics, which you can tell by what I just said is one of uh, my Absolutely. favorite things for a fiction to do. And another book that I really, really love that just came out, I think, last summer is Terror Story by Hilary Leiter. Um, the reason I love Terror Story is for I, I am a word girl. I love the way words feel and sound on the page. And I really think Hilary Leiter is one of the most beautiful poets writing fiction today. Um, her economy with language and her ability to like use metaphors to capture sort of liminal emotional experiences is just really, really amazing. So those are two books that I've been really loving. Molly, thank you so much. Jonathan Abernathy, Your Kind is out right now. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.